Amen. Good morning, King's Cross. Visitors, friends, it's good to be with you on this Lord's Day. I'm a little hot. Might want to turn me down just a little bit. I'm going to get excited. It's Easter Sunday, so don't, don't make the people deaf in the room. <clears throat> I do uh, notice, obviously, there's lots of friends and family in town visiting because of the holidays, and, and perhaps uh, you're here uh, just to explore the things of Christ on an Easter holiday. But you are a little more quiet than normal, so I might need us to wake up just a little bit by looking at your neighbor and saying, neighbor, he got up. <laughs> We've got good news to celebrate this morning. Indeed, the tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. And we are here to meditate and think on the glorious resurrection of Christ. In fact, this Easter Sunday morning, I want to talk to you about the inexpressible joy of living hope. I'm not here to talk to you about dead hope, not hanging on hope. Not fluttering hope, not halfway hope, not shaky hope, not a little bit of hope, not temporary hope. No, we're here to talk this morning about resurrected hope, living hope, sure hope, stable hope, all the way hope, infinite hope, a lot of bit of hope, eternal hope, rock solid hope. And all of this hope hinges on an empty tomb in the Middle East. All of the hope that we have hinges on the fact that Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, walked out of death on the third day. If he didn't get up, we ain't got it. If he didn't walk out of death, we have no living hope. But friends, he did walk out of death. And we do have living hope. The resurrection of Christ is our only means of living hope. If you do not believe or trust in the resurrection of Christ, then your hope is as strong as your understanding and control of the cosmos. If Christ did not get up out of death some 2,000 years ago, then we're all throwing darts at object of hope with no real bullseye to hit. My prayer today is that each of you will walk out of this building knowing where to find the inexpressible joy of living hope. Now, there are at least three different groups of people in the room I want to address even before we get into our text this morning. As a pastor, I've been praying for all three groups all week. And I feel particular burdens to faithfully proclaim the truth of God's word to all three groups. First, I would assume there are plenty of non-Christians here with us today, those who are not followers of Christ, and you would know yourself not to be a follower of Christ. Perhaps, perhaps already to this point, you've heard uh, about as many eternal truth claims as you can stomach. <laughs> Thanks for still being here. <laughs> Thanks for not leaving. And know that a lot more eternal truth claims are coming. But I've been praying for you all week praying that you, you would be here. And I would just plead with you, if you're not a Christian, not a follower of Christ, and you're here this morning or even in the overflow listening to us and, and gathered with us, I would plead with you. Just as a neighbor and hopefully as a new friend, you're here. Why not lean in and take seriously the claims that the historic Christian faith has always taught about the resurrection of Christ? Would you commit for the next 40 minutes to being as open-minded and open-hearted as you could possibly be and just see what happens? With God's help, as faithfully as I can, I will introduce and show you the source of joy that so many in this room and around the world and indeed throughout human history have. If you leave rejecting all that I say, know that we love you and care about you. The second group that I'm burdened for in this room are those who I would simply call nominal Christians. 
I would assume there are at least a several of you here that think you are right with God because of something that happened in your past. Perhaps you prayed some kind of prayer. You went down front. You got baptized. You had some kind of intense emotional experience, signed some card, or made some kind of commitment. But that event in your past has little to no impact on your present life. You live, feel, and believe no different than plenty of non-Christian friends around you, and yet you think your eternity is secure. Somehow you believe that the God whom you want nothing to do with in your day-to-day, you want to spend eternity with. If it feels like that might be you, I want you to know I'm super glad, and we're super glad you're here. This is a good and safe place for you to be. And I would just let you know I've been praying for you all week, and I pray that you would lean in and consider this living God who really walked out of death has something to say about your day-to-day life, not merely your eternity or that event in your past. And he has eternal joy to offer. And then lastly, I assume the bulk of you are Christians. You have all of the belief in your heart that Jesus really did walk out of that tomb, and it really is empty, and the throne really is occupied. I've also been praying for you all week. My prayer for you is that you would lean in and have that living hope strengthened and stirred and encouraged on this Resurrection Sunday morning. To that end, let us consider three glorious truths from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3-9. through Summarizing this main point, the resurrection of Jesus gives new life, guarantees eternal reward, and guards us unto glory. Again, the resurrection of Jesus gives new life, guarantees eternal reward, and guards us into glory. Pray with me one more time, and we'll jump into our text. Father, would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, breathe resurrection hope into our gathering this morning? And indeed, in all faithful gospel-preaching churches all over the globe, would you breathe resurrection hope through your Spirit? Would you open the hearts of those who do not believe by granting them faith? Would you confront nominal Christians and convert them to a true and joyful relationship with you? Would you grant that all those who belong to you would honor Christ the Lord as holy and leave this gathering prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the inexpressible joy and hope that is in them? God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray you would speak to us by your spirit through your word. In the resurrected Lord Jesus' name we pray, amen. First, this morning, the glorious truth I want to meditate on is Jesus' resurrection gives new life. Look again at chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The apostle Peter begins the body of his epistle with a joyful declaration and celebration of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're an outsider, you're not familiar with the scriptures, it's fair to ask why Peter's so lit from the opening verses of this epistle, or why Christians are so lit on Easter Sunday morning to celebrate and talk about resurrection of Christ. And Peter immediately shows us why, by revealing the source of living hope. Notice what he begins with, according to his great mercy. Let me tell you a little bit about the apostle Peter. Peter spent three years following the Lord Jesus the better part of three years. If you know anything about him, you know that Peter was quick to speak and probably slow to listen. He was passionate and fiery, super loyal, but often putting his loyal foot in his mouth. Once when Jesus uh, announced that he was gonna have to suffer and die, Peter actually rebuked him, rebuked the king of glory, and says, no, 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 you're not gonna do this. 
And Jesus responded to this rebuke and said, get behind me, Satan. You're setting your minds on, on things that are, that are more like the father of lies than the father of glory. Anytime something got in the way of Christ marching towards his cross, he saw it as a demonic attempt to, to end redemption. This is not a great moment for Peter. And think about Good Friday, when Jesus died, suffered at his time of need. Peter, his most passionate and loyal disciple, previously had proclaimed that even if everyone else, with great bravado, he said, if everybody else abandons you, not me, I'll stay with you to the end. And then he denied Jesus, not once, but three times on Good Friday because of fear of the crucifying crowds. See, Peter was keenly aware of his sin and rebellion against God. He knew he naturally opposed God and God's will. But after Jesus' resurrection, Peter had a very special interaction with Christ. We read in John chapter 21. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to them the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, I truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying these things, he said to him, follow me. Peter was a great sinner who imperfectly followed a great Savior. He saw his master, teacher, and Lord crucified. He abandoned him in his time of need, but he also saw his master, teacher, and Lord resurrected, and he was restored. Just like he denied the Lord Jesus three times, the Lord Jesus gave him three opportunities to pronounce, Jesus, I love you. And then Jesus commissioned him to feed his sheep, to take care and teach all that Jesus taught to all of those whom he loves. And Peter followed him. Jesus even let him know, you're going to die doing this. And Peter obeyed. He knows he will die for Christ. And this epistle is an application of that interaction. Peter is feeding Christ's sheep even through this word. And he begins with a praise break. <laughs> He opens up, saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I know who I am. I know who he is. I know the kind of grace and mercy he has according to his great mercy. He knows intellectually and experientially that the source of living hope is the mercy of God, nothing he has done. And what has this mercy done? What does this mercy do? It gives new life. Look where he continues. He says, he has caused us, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Peter says God's mercy is the only explanation for those previously spiritually dead to be born again to new life. Peter remembers what the Lord Jesus taught Nicodemus who snuck to him at night. Like, wait a minute, there's something going on with you. Nicodemus has this interaction with Christ and what did Jesus teach him? John chapter 3. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel 
that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Peter knows Jesus taught Nicodemus you had to be born again to see and enter the kingdom of God. Peter knows and witnessed and watched what happens when Jesus bumps into a situation of death. His friend Lazarus has died. His sister is crying out, asking for his help. Jesus himself weeps and cries over this death. Peter remembers what Jesus does with death. John chapter 11. Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, his sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you, you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people, including Peter, standing around, that they may believe you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And then Peter was restored by his resurrected Lord. Peter interacted with his Savior who died, who he abandoned, who rose again, who restored him with holes through his hands and feet. Restored Peter. Peter knows God's mercy is able to give new life. He's heard it. He's witnessed it. He's experienced it. This miracle that happens when one is converted is the miracle of new birth. We were all dead in sin, relationally dead to God, even if we were unaware of it. We all, you followed your heart, you lived your truth, you loved what God called sin, and you found the things of God kind of, uh, at best. Or downright offensive and abhorrent at worst. You were normal. You just did whatever your heart and flesh and desires told you to do, and you looked around and thought, that's fine, that's what everybody does. But God. Paul captures in those glorious words found in Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind and the body, or by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Peter says it was according to God's mercy. Paul says God is being rich in mercy. According to God's rich mercy, we've been born again. We've been brought to life. And what is the means of this distribution of mercy? Through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. We were dead in sin, dead to God, just doing what we've been taught to do. But because Jesus shed his blood on Calvary's cross on Good Friday, paid the payment for our sins so he could give us forgiveness, and he walked out of the tomb on that Sunday morning. And because of that, we have been made new. We are alive because the sinless Son of God died to forgive us, to set us free from our sin. And then on the third day, he got up. Because he got up, we came to life. Just let your eyes scan down in, in, in the first chapter of 1 Peter. Verse 18, Peter articulates it. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, 
but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Jesus paid the penalty of our sins on Good Friday and proved his victory on Resurrection Sunday. He who knew no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. The resurrection of Christ was the exclamation point to his victorious work. And by his spirit, he caused you to be born again to living hope. This is good news. Non-Christian friend, what do you do with the life and resurrection of Christ? Even his enemies admitted Jesus taught with authority like no other. Plenty of friends and enemies watched him heal the sick and deliver the demonic. Plenty of people, enemies and friends alike, witnessed the fact that he died a ruthless death via Roman crucifixion because Jewish leaders accused him of blasphemy. After being crucified, dead and buried, it's believed on the third day he resurrected from the dead. He interacted with more than 500 people. He taught that he was the savior of the world. It sparked such a religious movement that there are people still willing to die today to confess their faith in him two millennia later. Non-Christian friends, even skeptical friends, what do you make of his death, burial, and resurrection? What are your options? What are the other beliefs? Well, you could consider, like Muslims teach, argue that Jesus... It wasn't really Jesus who died on the cross, but someone who looked like him. It was a look-alike. Muhammad began teaching this as recorded in the Quran some 600 years after it happened. Or you could believe Jesus didn't really die. Some, some theories are that he didn't actually die. He was just injured really bad on the cross and he passed out. Now this is all but ludicrous because I just want to walk through kind of this. Like this really is an articulation and belief. Most historians, even those who aren't Christians, admit we have sufficient historical proof that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. And understand and think about Roman crucifixion and the process Christ went through. He was tied up and beaten with leather straps and bedded with metal pieces and bone fragments. And he had a crown of thorns forced down on his head and then he was beaten with a rod in the head that had the thorns. Then he was pierced by nine inch nails through his hands and feet and hung up on a cross where he would be suffocating as he's hanging and he'd push on the nails to catch his breath for a moment only to have so much pain searing through his hands and feet that he'd have to go back down until he suffocated and died. And then they pierced him with a bow to make sure he was dead and water and blood poured out from him. It's all but absurd to think he only passed out. But even if you believe that, you got to go further. Then they put his body in a tomb. He woke up from being passed out bloody and beaten, somehow was strong enough to remove the stone, overtake the Jewish SWAT team, and then go away free with no one else ever to see him again. <laughs> like, this makes no sense. Maybe you believe, like others believe, that it was the wrong tomb, that the, the frantic disciples went to the wrong, unused, empty tomb. And they mistakenly spread the story that he resurrected. But for some mysterious reason, the Jewish guards in front of the correct tomb didn't stop this fabricated story by saying, no, we have his body, it's right here. Or maybe fourthly, you think his disciples were just delusional. Some people believe the 500 or so brothers and sisters that saw the resurrected Lord had the same hallucination. And that the same hallucination was so powerful that most of the apostles and plenty of the disciples were willing to be martyred for their faith in this hallucination. And yet even then, you have to conclude 
the Jewish leaders didn't let everybody know, no, we still have his body. It was just a hallucination. He's right here. Or fifthly, as some believe, and we even see in Scripture, some believe and teach that Jesus' disciples stole the body. These fishermen and tax collectors, they overtook the Jewish SWAT team, stole the body. Or maybe, as is more popular today, you're making the trendy decision to be more agnostic with it. To deconstruct as an end. And not even concern yourself with constructing any coherent thoughts about life, death, the afterlife, and what Jesus Christ has to do with all of it. Friend, I just ask you, if you were proven guilty of a crime and were about to be sentenced to life without parole, but you were told about one advocate who could exchange your life sentence in prison for infinite resources as a living co-heir with the king and his kingdom, would you really remain agnostic about that advocate? Or would you investigate and see if he's legit? Do you believe one of these theories or do you refuse to genuinely consider or do you believe Jesus really did resurrect? Friend, there are literally hundreds of people in this room who will confirm Jesus makes spiritually dead people come to life. And not just in this room, but all over the world. We're not talking about some kind of white evangelical voting block. We're talking about the King of Kings saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who have the same story. I was blind, but now I see I was dead, and now I'm alive. Living hope now that transcends human speech's ability to articulate is the dominant testimony of all who've come to faith. We've been born again to a living hope. We've been saved from spiritual death. But the good news doesn't stop here. Jesus' resurrection not only gives new life, but secondly, Jesus' resurrection guarantees eternal reward. So in verse 4, we see Peter now explain what he means by a living hope. The resurrection of Jesus not only saves us from spiritual death and eternal condemnation, but into and unto a glorious inheritance that's exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. We've been saved from the penalty of our sins. We've been saved from eternal death to the prize of this eternal inheritance. To be born again... To be resurrected from your spiritual grave is to be born again to a heavenly father that guarantees you an eternal inheritance. All of his children, he guarantees you have an eternal inheritance. And look at how Peter describes this inheritance to all who put their faith in the substitutionary death and resurrection of Christ. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Notice three aspects of the reward on the other side of our living hope. First, our guaranteed eternal reward is imperishable. Every material thing you own or could even hope to own will one day be no more. When you die, you'll go into eternity and you'll take no tangible things with you. Now, some people choose to be buried with certain valuables and clothes and certain things. Every bit of it becomes dust. This is why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is there your heart will be also. Faith in the resurrected Jesus means you have an inheritance that is imperishable. It will not perish. It is eternal. It will never go away. It will never crash with the stock market. It'll never tank with the economy. If you believe in Christ and his finished work, then it's yours and yours to enjoy forever. 
This is why the missionary Jim Elliott said famously, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Our inheritance is imperishable. Not only that, secondly, notice it's undefiled. The inheritance kept in heaven for all of the children of God is undefiled. This means the reward coming to you if you're in Christ and trust in his resurrection is not tainted by your sin. It cannot be ruined by your imperfections. One, good or one bad day can't mess it up. It cannot be tarnished by your bad works nor purified by your good works. No, it is pure as gold, clear as diamond because of the work of Christ. You did not earn it, therefore you cannot lose it. It's by his work on Calvary and the application of his work of the Spirit in your life that you get this reward. Now there's surely some impact of our faithfulness to some of the details of our eternal reward. But this much is guaranteed to all who trust in Christ's resurrection. The reward you have waiting for you will be undefiled, pure, beautiful, glorious. Thirdly, notice the eternal reward earned by Christ waiting for us is unfading. It's not like every new thing you get here that begins to lose luster as soon as you get it. <laughs> like the new car loses the new car smell so quick. I've never had a new car, but this is what people tell me. <laughs> like so quickly the new car smell is gone and the value drops as soon as you go off the parking lot. You get a new phone. You ain't even figured out all the features on it and there's another new, uh, new uh, 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 thing coming out. You're like, oh, I ain't even figured this one out and there's yet there's another one. Always, everything we get is fading, it's fading, it's fading, not the eternal reward, it's unfading. Not so with this eternal reward. It's not getting old while waiting for you. It will not be outdated when you get it. It will be as glorious 10,000 years from now as it is right now and as it will be the day you first receive it. And this reward is being kept in heaven for you. God is a good father with his children who look to Christ, who's ecstatic to keep this imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance for you, his child. Non-Christian friends, even suffering sinners, do you not long for this promise of resurrection life? Like seriously, do you really believe that this life is all that there is, that this is literally as good as it gets? Do you not find that your heart longs for another world? Can you not resonate with what C.S. Lewis argues in Mere Christianity? If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection on that great day and gives us that great reward. We will be resurrected with him in the new heavens and the new earth where there are no more tears because our resurrected Savior's nail-pierced hands wipe them away from our face. No more disease. No more death, no more crime, no more hate, no more struggle with sin. We will enjoy our God. We will be his people and the inheritance he's kept for us waiting. Jesus' resurrection gives new life and guarantees eternal reward. Therefore, it is right to say we have been saved for those who are in Christ. And we will be saved finally and fully in glory when we see him face to face. But what about these days in between those days? So we, will be, we, we, were, we were saved, we were born again, we received new life, and, and we were raised to this eternal hope. And when we trusted and we know the end game of this thing is beautiful, what, what does the resurrection have to say for here and now, right now, today? What does living hope look like while living in this broken world? Thirdly, Jesus' resurrection guards us unto glory. 
Jesus' resurrection guards us into glory. What is our great hope in life and death? Again, after new birth, but before receiving our glorious inheritance from our Father. Where do we find strength to make it through the trials and tribulations of life in this broken world to that, until that great day? Does God save us, forgive us, and then turn us loose as spiritual newborns to figure it out on our own? Of course not. Follow the logic of the text. Let's go back to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you see the security of living hope? We are being guarded. We are being kept by the same God who saved us. The same God who says, I will breathe new life into you, bring you to life. The same God who says, I've got an eternal inheritance waiting for you, kept for you. In the middle of all this, I'll guard you to make sure you get there. The same mercy of God who gives new life and guarantees eternal reward uses his omnipotent power to guard and keep us unto glory. God's great grace and mercy woke us up from the dead. God's great grace and mercy will give us a glorious inheritance and God's great grace and mercy will make sure we get from A to Z. Grace doesn't just get you saved and get you into heaven. It guards you and keeps you until you arrive all by the power of the Holy Spirit. Think of the comforting words of our Lord Jesus in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Brother, sister, he will hold you fast. He will guard you into that day. He will keep you until the end. You will make it because as Pastor Tony Evans says, God has an omnipotent grip on you. The security of living hope is crucial because life with Christ in this broken world is difficult. So we need to understand and know the same God who saved me, the same God who will take me and promise his glory is the God who keeps me even in the midst of great tribulation, great trial, great suffering in this life. He's with me. He's got me. He will keep me. Peter shows us this. He shows us here's what you should anticipate the circumstantial experience of living hope to be like. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I've got something interesting to tell you this morning. It's 2023 and the late Bob Ross painting shows are still captivating. <clears throat> I don't know if y'all know what I'm talking about. The old dude with kind of the froze situation who just paints on these canvases. We introduced our kids to Bob Ross recently. 14, 12, and 7. And of course they loved him. They loved him. Why? Well, because his calming voice is only superseded by these calming scenes he paints out of nowhere on these canvases. Blank canvases suddenly birth a world full of trees and moving water and clouds and glorious light. These peaceful scenes pop out of the canvas and it's beautiful and magical. 
Friends, God's redemptive work in history and how you fit into the canvas of redemptive history is infinitely more brilliant than Bob Ross's greatest works. In fact, he makes Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel look like a toddler's first finger painting. You might not understand the dark, shaded trials he's painting in your life right now. You might not understand the pain, the confusion, the hurt, the loss, the agony, the brokenness. But oh, beloved, if you're in Christ, if you're born again, if you're headed to glory, you'll see how that shade fits in with the rays of light later. When you see your portion of the canvas as merely a small portion of the larger story that he's painting and your stories overlapping with the other stories that he has redeemed, believers from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and we get to that eternal reward, it's going to be breathtaking. Like a Bob Ross painting seemingly coming out of nowhere. Like Michelangelo or Beethoven's greatest works. Like your favorite artist's most brilliant metaphors and similes. Like the most brilliant storyteller books that you've ever got lost in. Like the director whose multiple layers in a movie always blow your mind. When you see how your trials fit into the story of the Savior's triumph, the wow factor will be more than you can even imagine. All who are born again by His great mercy will look at the canvas of redemption and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible to the praise and glory and honor of the resurrected Christ. Christian, He's guarding you into glory. And when you get to glory, you will see it is glorious. You may not understand all the brokenness in this life, but you will understand at some point. The suffering will end, and you'll see it. And you'll say, God, I never would have done it that way, but I see how and why you did. I see how you use it to your great glory and the good and advancement of the gospel, and it is beautiful. He's making even your hardest and most painful trials refine you and make your faith pure as gold. He's bringing glory to his name, refining your faith, strengthening you, and guaranteeing, keeping you safe unto glory on that great day. And that climactic moment is the moment that all other climactic moments are mere shadows of, and that moment will happen. And do you know why that's guaranteed? Because there's an empty tomb in the Middle East and an occupied throne in glory. And on that throne, the King of glory, he's not pacing about heaven, anxious and nervous about how this is all going to turn out. No, he's seated at his Father's right hand with a smile on his face, interceding for you by the power of the Spirit, keeping you, guarding you, until you get that inheritance you will enjoy. Subjectively, do you know what that feels like? you know what it feels like to be guarded by God? To be kept by the Spirit internally? What does it look like when the, the Spirit of God testifies to our spirit that we're children of God? And if children of God co-heirs with Christ, what does that experience feel like? Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled, filled with glory. You love him. Christian, don't you feel it? You love God. That's a miracle. You were dead in sin. You naturally hated God, but he gave you new life. You love God. You love him. You haven't seen him, but you love him. You believe in him. Christian, when you don't know what else to do, where do you turn? To God. You trust him. 
You turn to him, like plenty of the Psalms, lament Psalms saying, God, I'm broken, the world's broken, I don't know what's going on, how long, my Lord, but I trust you. Christian, do you feel it? You believe in him. Even in a broken world where the news feeds are overwhelming, week in and week out, you believe him. And you rejoice with joy, inexpressible joy. Christian, do you not feel that joy even now? That's evidence the Spirit is guarding you and keeping you, even by His Spirit, through His Word, right now. This is why we sing. We're not singing it today, but this is why we sing. I've still got joy and chaos. I've got peace that makes no, makes no sense. I will be going under. I'm not held by my own strength. I'm held by the strength of the hands that, that have holes in them. He's got me, and He'll make sure He saved me. He gave me life to begin with. He's going to get me to glory. I'm going to get the inheritance. He will keep me from here to there. Friends, do you know my Savior? To know him is to love him. To know him is to believe in him. To know him is to have inexpressible joy in him, even when you don't get it. If you don't love him, if you don't believe in him, if you don't have joy in him, friend, maybe you're a Christian in name only. If that is you, turn to him in repentance and faith today and experience living hope that impacts every single day. And he will guard you unto glory until that outcome of living hope, which we read again in verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So it is right for us to say we were saved from spiritual death. We are saved to this eternal inheritance and we'll be saved through whatever we're going through. The resurrection of Jesus gives new life. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees eternal reward. The resurrection of Jesus guards into glory. That's living hope. And that's what we need to walk out of these doors with today to serve our hopeless world. Even if they hate and persecute us, even if they mock and make fun of and deride us, we know the end. And we have living hope. And so Peter says later, chapter 3, verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. We have inexpressible joy of living hope. Christians, we are not hoping in some dead man's legacy. Jesus is alive. We proclaim a resurrected Savior. We're not talking about some dead dude who's gone. No, we're talking about a resurrected, reigning, living King who's alive and well, interceding and praying for us and will return for us and will take us to glory where we get that inheritance. Do you see the past, present, and future glory of salvation in Christ? All of that is because the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied by our interceding Savior. Again, I say to you, if the tomb has a body in it, our hope is dead. But, then, but if that tomb is empty, then our hope and joy is full. So let us sing now with inexpressible joy of living hope because that tomb is empty, that throne is occupied. So again, one more time, somebody look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, he got up. Let's close and pray. Father God, we thank you for the resurrected Lord and King. We thank you for the grace and mercy that brings dead sinners like me, like us, to life.
The grace and mercy who guarantees their eternal inheritance coming. The grace and mercy that will guard us and keep us unto glory. And we pray even now, Father, for the skeptical non-believer in the room. Would you give them faith? For the suffering sinner in the room, would you give them hope? For everybody in the room, would you strengthen and convince us indeed of living hope that you're God of great mercy and grace. May we all cast ourselves on the mercy and grace of God in Christ. Give us faith that the tomb really is empty and that an empty tomb really does impact how I live here and now. Give us faith to suffer well through our trials, knowing our faith is being refined and you're getting great glory. Give us faith to know that there's a, 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 an inheritance waiting for us, imperishable, undefiled, in heaven waiting for us, unfading. And help us love and serve our neighbor as ourself, even those who hate us. Let us be ready to tell them about hope, living hope, Jesus the King. Keep your head bowed. You continue to pray. And we'll respond in just a moment in song.